you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Luke, if you're new with us, uh, we'll be in verses 14 through 28 this morning. What does it mean to truly follow Jesus? For many, following Jesus is the mere confession of Jesus as Savior. Uh, We're all aware, we see people all of the time after a sporting event or after a championship win or a Super Bowl win or some other monumental uh, event want to thank God or thank Jesus for the opportunity to participate or for winning. And do not get me wrong, that is not all bad and I do not think that all of it is in vain at all. Uh, But does following Jesus mean merely acknowledging him after a great victory in life or a championship win? Or does it involve much more than that? Well, we know the sobering reminders throughout all of the New Testament that confirm that those who merely acknowledge Christ with their mouths and not with their lives are disillusioned as to who Jesus is and what his message actually was. And this is something that we encounter in today's text in Luke chapter 11. At the heart of this passage that we're considering lies a profound truth about basic discipleship. That is, that following Jesus is not merely a matter of words or beliefs in your mind, but of action and allegiance. The words of Jesus from Luke 11.23 that we'll read in just a moment cut to the core of our commitment to Christ and really challenge all of the prevailing views of both unbelief and the cultural Christianity that we all encounter so often. Maybe we live with it within ourselves or within our own homes. And so what Jesus tells us in this passage, though, is that there's only two ways to live. There's only two ways to live in this life. There is the way of Christ, and there is the way of the enemy. There is the way of Jesus, and there is the way of Satan. And we must understand, church, this is significantly important, especially being planted right in the Bible Belt where we are. We must understand that there is no neutrality with Jesus. Between Jesus and the enemy, there's no middle ground for those people who are just kind of good people and do the right things and this, that, and the other. There's no neutrality with Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. You can't ride the fence with Jesus. You're either all in or you're all out. There's no halfway. You're either one of those radical Christians who whose lie lives out their faith and seeks to follow the example of Christ and the Word of God, or you're no Christian at all. That's what Scripture tells us. And so I know that sounds radical and harsh, even, maybe, in our uh, soft culture. But it is the testimony of the Scriptures. And so to follow Jesus is to embrace a life of discipleship one of which is countercultural to this world, and one of which is countercultural to what a lot of people think a Christian actually is. And so it's to walk in Jesus' footsteps. It's to live as He lived, to obey Him, and to obey the Scriptures, and to love as He loves. 
It is to surrender our wills to His, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Him wherever He leads. And as we have seen, following Jesus requires us to leave behind the comforts and the securities of this world and to embrace uh, the call of a life of sacrifice and service. You see, many people appreciate Jesus. I think people appreciate Jesus. See this in this text. I think people appreciate Jesus. I think in this account, we see people who appreciate Jesus. But there is a difference in appreciating Jesus for what he brings to the table and loving Jesus, following Jesus, and surrendering your life to Jesus. For merely to appreciate Jesus is not to know the real Jesus. And so I pray that we will know the real Jesus this morning. I pray that we will listen carefully to the real Jesus and determine what we will make of him. And I pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word. If you're able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, now how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters." When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Pray with me. Father, as we approach your word this morning, may we do so with humility. May we do so in a posture worthy of you. God, may you take these truths and plant them deep into our hearts. May you expose things within our lives that need to be exposed. May you convict us where we need conviction. May you correct where we need correction. And God, may you, by your Spirit, mold us more into the image of Christ, whom we know is found, in him is found infinite joy. 
Bless our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we begin to navigate through this passage in Luke chapter 11, let me remind you that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, where he will eventually be captured, unjustly tried, and then crucified. And so all of the events that we've been considering and in all of the events that we're going to consider in the months ahead before his crucifixion uh, kind of lead into that. And so Jesus is concerned in these final uh, moments of his life leading him to Jerusalem. He's concerned about teaching his disciples what it looks like to follow him in lieu of his resurrection and ascension, his return back to the Father. And so the question then becomes, how do we walk with Christ when he is no longer physically with us on this earth? And that is what he is instructing his disciples and us. How do we walk with Jesus in the real world in our everyday lives? And I think all of us have asked that question of God or that question of the scriptures, and we've usually a lot of times followed it up with, if you just reveal yourself to me one time, you know, I'd, I'd know, you know. Uh, But it is that question that we all wrestle with and a question that we've all been learning as we walk through uh, through this, this gospel. And so with this, the first observation I want to make from this passage is this. The spiritual delusion of those who reject Jesus. The spiritual delusion of those who reject Jesus. We see this in verses 14 through 23. So as I read this passage uh, just a moment ago, you may have picked up on the fact that Jesus used some tricky and seemingly strange illustrations that are maybe hard to grasp. They kind of sound funny to our ears. And so in doing so, he uses these to communicate with his audience that God has some really some deep, precious jewels for us that can be mined through the tough soils of strange stories and hard things to understand in the Scriptures, those of which I hope that we dig up this morning. And so this passage begins with uh, Jesus healing a demon-possessed man who was mute. That is, he was unable to speak. And so the gathered crowd, as Jesus heals this man, as he then speaks, the demon has left him, and he then speaks, the gathered crowd responded to his healing with two objections that I think, when you see a moment like this, are quite ridiculous. The first objection that the crowd voices is as if Jesus' miracles are somewhat rigged like a magic trick and they finally figured it out. Oh, we got it. You're casting out demons by the power of Satan. We know how you're doing this. We know how you've been doing all of these crazy things in our presence and casting out demons. You're doing it by the power of Beelzebub, they say. The power of Satan. Now, Beelzebub, which you have probably heard that term. I don't, we don't use these names. I hope you didn't name your kids these names. We don't use these names very often. But Beelzebub was one of the names of the uh, Philistine god of Baal that we see in 2 Kings 1, 1 through 3, which means Lord of Flies. Y'all remember that book, Lord of the Flies? Yeah. Freaked me out when I was a kid and we read that book. I'm like, what is happening here, you know? And so a variant is of Beelzebub is Beelzebul, which means Lord of Dwelling and ties in with Christ's illustrations in this passage. And so the Jews often use this name when referring to Satan. And so some believe that this is a reference to Satan himself. Others think it's a reference to, uh, not specifically to Satan, but a prince or a king of demons within Satan's hierarchy. Okay? And so regardless, though, we can say that this is a dark power 
that this crowd is saying that Jesus is casting out by, a satanic power, whether that be Satan himself or some other demon. And so the crowd thinks that they have it all figured out. Jesus is either healing people by Satan or the chief amongst all the evil demons. We know what you're doing. We got you figured out. And then the other response that they give that is quite fascinating is that they desire to test him. And they say, show me another sign from heaven. So what's fascinating about this to me is Jesus just drives a demon out of a man. This guy who can't talk, who is mute because he has a demon, Jesus casts it out. This man starts speaking, and the crowd says, no, 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 we want to see something else. That's cool. We want to see something else. And so they have two very interesting responses. One, you're casting out by Satan. Two, it's not good enough for me. I need something else. But what Jesus shows us in these responses is those who operate from this perspective of unbelief and distrust, they do so in spiritual delusion. Jesus responds, knowing their thoughts, in verses 17 and 19. Look at 17 and 19. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And so what Jesus is saying here is, if that is indeed true, if what you're saying is true, that I am casting out demons, satanic demons, by the power of Satan, then what you are saying is absolutely foolish. It is nonsense. You say, I drive out demons by the power of Beelzebul, and if that is the case, then Satan's kingdom will not stand if some who are within the kingdom are driving out their compadres. Does that make sense? Driving out their own people. It'd be like one army waging war on itself. It's counterproductive. And so they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth, and Jesus says, what you're saying is absolutely ridiculous. It's foolish. And so he gets to the point of explaining the delusion of those who reject him in verses 21 through 23. Look at 21 through 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying that Satan, or these forces of darkness over the world, they have had this world under their strength and under their power and under their control and under their sway. Strong man, if you will. And yet Jesus is saying that I who have entered this world am stronger than he. You say I cast out by the power of Satan. That's not the case. There is a strong man that has been given sway over this world, but I who have entered this world am stronger than he. And I can break the shackles, Jesus says. I can break the restraints. I can raise the dead to life. I can free the captive and bring them to myself. Do you understand what Jesus is asserting here? He's saying those that do not trust him, those who do not follow him, those who do not come to new life in him, they are not casually neutral. 
They are under spiritual delusion that blinds them and entices them to trust in things other than Jesus, all of which Jesus has overcome. And so this can be both the homeless drug addict sleeping under a bridge or the person sailing on their yacht or about to board their private plane with all of the pleasures of the world right under their fingertips. Whoever they are, whatever their wealth, whatever their economic status, whatever their cultural background, whatever they live on this planet, if they do not follow Jesus, Jesus is saying here that they are not neutral. They are blinded. They are under spiritual delusion. And only Jesus can break the bond. Only Jesus can give them eyes to see because only Jesus is stronger than the prince of the power of the air who holds sway over this world. Think about it this way. Many in the crowd were not supporters of demon possession. I think we could draw that assumption. I think if all of us were to poll each other here today and go, who, raise your hand if you support demon possession and think it's a great thing. I hope nobody would say yes. They weren't supporters of hoping that evil would come upon their world. I think we can say that. They weren't some sort of Satan-loving masochist that just loved to torture themselves. I think they appreciate Jesus. Even in this moment, he, can, he makes a, a mute man speak. I think they appreciate Jesus, and I think that they're grateful for the miracles that Jesus did, and yet when Jesus says, okay, here are these miracles, now here's what it takes to follow me, they said, oh, no, hold on, that's a bridge too far. I'll take the miracles, but not the surrender. And what Jesus holds out before them, and what Jesus holds out before you and I today, church, in his wisdom, is the same truth that plagues us culturally. We are often moved by the beauty and wonder of creation. And we are. Captivated by the most stunning sunrises and sunsets, and rightly so. Captivated by the vast reach of things like the Grand Canyon or a mountain range or the beach or whatever the case may be that stretch into the heavens. Often, many are moved by creation, what we see that God has done and God has created, but we refuse to worship God as Creator. What other excuse could it be but spiritual delusion? Perhaps you know somebody who generally affirms or agrees with the claims of Christianity, yet they refuse to surrender their life to Jesus. Probably do. We all know someone. They put posts on Facebook, they put posts on Instagram about how good God is, yet they haven't picked up their Bible or darkened the doors of a church outside of Christmas and Easter in years. They keep Jesus at an arm's distance, sure. Maybe they pray whenever crisis or adversity arises, but total surrender before Him, well, that's just not in the cards. He's a get-out-of-jail-free card. But do you remember how this whole exchange started? Jesus healed this man who was mute, and I don't think it was an accident. I think this man signifies spiritual muteness, spiritual disability, stunted development. And what's the only solution here? 
Jesus to break the bonds. Jesus to arrest the one who binds them and to free them from the prison that they do not know that they are in. And look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is fascinating. Now, this language might not do anything for you initially, but this phrase, finger of God, has significance. In Exodus chapter 8, captures the story of when God was bringing plagues upon Egypt. Many of you know the story. Who had all of Egypt had all of God's people under their power, subjecting them to slavery. And the Egyptians and Pharaoh had them completely under their control. And so God, in seeking to free them, God is bringing plagues upon them to, to free them from this slavery to Egypt. And if you know the story, in the first three plagues that uh, Moses and Aaron bring about, the magicians or Satan or whoever you want to call it, Pharaoh's own magicians could equal those plagues or could do the same plagues that Moses was doing. You see them do the same thing in the story. But eventually, what happened? The magicians tapped out. They could no longer do the same things that Moses and Aaron were doing by the power of God. And in Exodus 8.19, they said, it is by the finger of God that these things are happening. And so Jesus is presenting Himself here in this text as the means by which the kingdom of God has arrived. That, the means by which the veil is lifted and eyes are open to see and behold God. And there are two brief points of application here I want to make. Never get over the wonder of your salvation. Never get over the wonder of your salvation. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you have come to Him and you have seen Him as the one who frees you from the bonds of your own sinful rebellion against Him and who has given you new life full of hope in Him, no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what this life throws at us, you never get over it. Never get over your salvation. Because here's the reality. You did not just make a good decision. You may think you evaluated the pros and the cons of knowing Christ opposed to a life of not knowing Christ. You may think that you've done all of these things. And yes, don't get me wrong, there's a decisional aspect to it. But foundationally, Jesus rescued you and brought you to life. Do not forget this. You didn't go looking for Jesus. We just sang this, and all I have is Christ. He came and rescued you. Do not get over the wonder that you didn't go looking for Jesus, and that He came to you. Second point of application, may we never tire, may we never waver in our praying for God to lift this delusion from those in our own lives or those in our own community who do not know Him. Pray for the people in your own life who you yearn to see converted. We pray because God must do the work in giving them life. And so they have this spiritual delusion and we may ask, well, how do I know whether I'm delusional? How do I know if I have this spiritual delusion or if someone else has this spiritual delusion? You want the strength of Jesus, you want the power of Jesus, the blessing of Jesus in your life, but perhaps you're slow to surrender before Jesus. That's one way to think about it, one diagnostic question. But there are other ways. But here, 
there's other ways here that Jesus graciously shows us and helps us to think through this. So as a part of revealing this spiritual delusion in this passage that those who do not know Him operate under, He then reveals the danger of halfway following Him. The danger of halfway following Him. We can know whether or not we are spiritually delusional by the measure of our own devotion to Christ. The danger of half-hearted devotion to Jesus. That's my second observation. We see this in verses 24 through 28. So a dangerous symptom to spiritual delusion is following Jesus halfway. This goes back to what I mentioned in the introduction. And as Jesus speaks these words, and we're called to evaluate our own hearts, He's like a good surgeon, really kind of operating on our hearts and operating on our minds with intense precision, because He gives these two illustrations of those who halfway follow Him. And we know, again, that halfway obedience or halfway devotion to Christ is actually no hope, no obedience, and no devotion at all. And so first, Jesus gives us the illustration of those who clean up their lives but are not converted. He does this starting in verse 24. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So Jesus gives this illustration of a man who has had demons leave his life. Now, there is a supernatural and spiritual component to our world, and even to our lives that are beyond the reach of what we can consider this morning. When we look at this text and we think about the doctrine of demons or various other things, we're not, we don't have time to get into those things. But what we see here is that there's this man that Jesus talks about that has this demon leave his life. And he gets all cleaned up. The demon leaves, he sweeps the house, everything's good, he gets all cleaned up. But then what happens? Well, he's only invaded once more by many more demons. And ultimately... Ultimately, he's worse off than he once was. Now, here's what we must understand about this. Coming to Jesus, and hear me very clearly, coming to Jesus is not a way to get a better handle on any addiction you struggle with. Coming to Jesus is not a way to become a better husband or a better wife or a better mom or a better dad or a better employee in the workplace. Coming to Jesus is not just turning over a new leaf. Coming to Jesus is surrendering entirely before Him and recognizing you need Him to bring you new life. Now, coming to Jesus obviously infiltrates all of those other things, but if you're coming to Jesus just as a, a, I hope this makes me better, or I hope that this fixes my problem, that's not going to help. You can go to a lot of other things that can help do that. But if you're coming to Jesus to completely surrender your life, that's when it works. You see, coming to Jesus is about life transformation. If you're coming to Jesus for any other reason than this, you are at risk of being under even worse of a spiritual delusion than you first were. 
Because Jesus warns us here of mistaking a cleaned up life for a Christian life. Hear this clearly. Jesus is showing us that if you have cleaned up your life, if you make yourself presentable in certain ways, or you consider yourself having things to boast in that you have done, then these can be, the, these can be very commendable, and yet you can still be unconverted and spiritually dead. Jesus warns of the delusion of believing this. Now let me be clear, very clear. You may immediately respond, well, okay, there's a lot we have to consider here. Are you saying that we shouldn't clean up our lives? Are you saying that Christianity would say to go and live your life however you want, doing whatever you want, indulging yourself in whatever you want, eat, drink, and be merry, for all is ours? Is that what you're saying? That's not what I'm saying at all. Don't hear that. What I'm saying, hear this, what I'm saying is that we cannot confuse the root and the fruit in the Christian life. The Christian life calls us to bear fruit in accord with godliness that evidences God's work in us. But if you have ever had a plant that had diseased roots, you'll know that it doesn't bear very good fruit because the roots are diseased. And so Jesus is saying to first... Put your attention on the roots, not the fruits. You may conjure up some spiritual good fruit in your life, in your own efforts, but they're going to wither away. They will not stand. He is saying that if you try to bear good fruit apart from knowing Him, your fruit will not be good and you will still be spiritually dead. I tried to do this a lot early on when I was a new believer because it was really, you know, kind of works-based for me. I think all, a lot of us are. And so what Jesus is saying to us is this. I give you a new root. I come to dwell in you. I give you new life. And then from that new life where you have repented of your sin, where you have forsaken your selfishness, your pride, your arrogance, your desire to serve your own wishes, your own dreams, your own goals, your desires to make life about you, your desire for things to revolve around you and everything about you, Jesus says, I give you me. I make you new by setting your heart and your affections upon me, and then you start to bear fruit in line with the work that I am doing in you, not in line with how you think you need to clean up your life. I don't know if you've tried to clean your life up without Jesus. It doesn't work. You see the difference here. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is not a beckon to come clean up your life. The Christian life tells you you can't clean up your life. But Christ must clean you up. That's the Christian message. And maybe you've been successful cleaning things up in your life and you think you have a pretty good grasp on it, but Jesus says to us that we can look outwardly cleaned up but still inwardly ripped apart. What he says is you might be able to fool everyone around you, but you can't fool him because he looks inside of you. If you'd like to know more about what it means to come to Christ and for him to make you new through his work 
his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, I would love to speak with you after the service. I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to coerce you. I'm not going to sell you anything. But I want to help you think through these questions of what it means, truly means to follow Christ, to know Christ and follow Him. And so to have this spiritual delusion lifted, there's a danger of halfway following Jesus. First, pertaining to those who clean up but are not converted. Second, those who love Jesus but do not listen to Him. Look at verse 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So the crowds have gathered, who have gathered, are seeing this dialogue that we have been walking through, this exchange. And there's a woman in the crowd, and this woman cries out with a sense of adoration, if you will, how wonderfully it must be for those who are near to Jesus, particularly Jesus' mother. She is blessed, really impressive. I can see you in the crowd, but how blessed are those who who are near to you, who are close to you. How blessed is the woman who bore you. And then Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, there are many of our Catholic neighbors who place great emphasis upon Jesus' mother, Mary. She's been held out as a beacon of godliness, as a unique and special recipient of the presence and mercy and the grace of God, one upon whom the blessings of God rest and one through whom we receive blessing. Yet Jesus would look at that and Jesus pumps the brakes on anything that would lead us to believe that Mary is divine or a special conduit of God's blessings to us. Now make no mistake, Mary is upheld in Scripture as a model of obedience. Obedience to God as an example of obedience and trust in God as He calls her to surrender her life to Him. We've seen this in Luke's account at the very start. But here Jesus shows us that those who are truly blessed are, those, are not those who have direct access to Him like His mother or through His mother but those who listen to Him, those who hear Him, those who keep His Word. Again, church, you can't come to Jesus halfway. If you aren't obedient to Jesus, you have not truly heard His Word. Blessed are those who hear it and keep it. This is the same message in verse 23. He says, if you're not for me, you're against me. Once more, there is no neutral ground. Well, how do you know if you're not against Jesus? You hear His Word and you keep it. So Jesus has brought us to this point to show us what it looks like to not know Him when you actually think you did. But what does it mean to truly know Him and to truly follow Him? How do we live this blessed life? How do, we get to, how do we get the demands of the real Jesus? Again, we see it clearly in 28. You hear it and keep it. Now you may think to yourself, this blessing is only given out to those super Christians. You know, we like to categorize everything. There's really, really those people who are really serious about their faith. Maybe you've always thought of yourself as kind of a back of the, the pack type person. Like, if we're having a church draft, you know, or, or like an old uh, baseball playground selection process, I know that probably brings some PTSD for some of y'all. They were like the last pick, all right? 
I was a premier athlete when I was seven, so I was not a last pick, all right? And you maybe you feel like you'd be the last pick among Christians. Well, if you feel like this, Jesus says to you that if you want the true blessing, if you want to know him, hear his word and keep it. That's all there is. And I wonder, has it ever dawned on you that listening to the Word of God, listening in sermons, listening while reading Scripture day by day, listening while participating in Bible study with other believers or one-on-one discipleship relationships or in small group or Sunday school, however they may be, has it ever dawned on you that listening, just listening, is an act of great and divine importance in your life? Hear the Word of God and keep it. This is why it's significant to be within a church family that preaches and teaches the Word of God. Jesus shows us that we must listen intently because there's power in His words. You can listen. You can prepare to listen well. You can prepare for sermons each week by reading the text ahead of time. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we're out of verse 40, uh, 28 today. We're going to be in verse 29 next week if you want to read ahead. We go all the way through. It's easy to keep up. I'll send you the preaching schedule if you'd like. It does change sometimes, though. As we get ready to hear God's Word, we can pray for illumination. We can pray for insight. We can pray for the ability to keep the Word and to be changed by the Word. Not just ask, well, do I need to know, but how do I need to grow? How does this force me to keep it? Sometimes we can treat the Bible like an instruction manual for our cars. Now, I'm not, I don't know anything about cars. Let me just be honest. I mean, if a light comes on, I take it to the shop. I don't get the instruction manual out, so this might not work for you, but just follow the illustration. Actually, I don't take it to the shop. I call Danny. I'm like, Danny, what's going on in my car, man? Sometimes we treat the Bible like an instruction manual for our cars in the sense that we have a light come on on the dashboard. Or what does that light mean? Well, let me get the instruction manual out and find out what this light means. Well, sometimes we have these dashboard lights that light up in our lives when we are feeling anxious or we're feeling worried or we're feeling overwhelmed or whatever it is. And so we try to find find how the Bible speaks to that. And we turn to passages that might be familiar, that we might be familiar with. And, and, and again, that's not necessarily bad. It's not bad at all. In fact, it's good to go to Scripture to help walk through the troubles in this life. But the Bible is not an instruction manual that stays in the glove compartment only to be brought out when the lights come on. It's actually an IV that injects God's power and purposes into us. His glory over all things and His grace revealed to us. The Bible is not something we put back up on our shelf. It is something that is the means by which God captivates us and grabs a hold of us and makes us new. Our area church, our lives are inundated with people who might be hearers of the word, and this may be you, but they do not keep it. Those, Jesus says, are not his people. In a world that is constantly pulling us in different directions, Jesus calls us to be a people who are anchored in his word, who stand firm on his promises, and who live out his truth in every area of our lives. This is where true blessedness is found. Not in the fleeting pleasures of this world, but in the eternal truths of God's Word. 
So as we prepare to leave this place today, let us commit ourselves anew to hearing and keeping the Word of God. Let us be a people known for our obedience, known for our faithfulness and our unwavering commitment to Christ. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.